The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so um, we're being recorded today in two ways. Uh, one way is through Sati Center, which wonderfully um, offers the teachings uh, you know, freely uh, to anyone who has access to the Internet. And we ourselves, uh, Rick and I, have uh, founded an institute a couple years ago called the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. And on that uh, website for the institute, wisebrain.org, it's basically a giant toolbox. It's kind of like spilling out. And we always post our talks uh, on that site. They're freely available for downloading, as well as many articles. And we will also post there the uh, slide set for this uh, day long today. One of the things you, uh, that wasn't included in, in the introduction, and that which Rick won't speak about, is that Rick is, um, Rick is the author of much of what's on the wisebrain.org website and also a very prolific publisher of articles and even a couple of books in his own right. Uh, there's a flyer out there for some happiness CDs that, um, in terms of practices that can lead to your own personal benefit that's out in the set of flyers out there for, for stuff that Rick has done and I'd, I'd encourage you to take a look at that. Well, sweet. Um, Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, also next to that, we have um, a sign-up pad, a uh, very um, low-tech sign-up pad, a yellow pad uh, with a pen on top of it. If you want to get on our email list for the WiseBrain Bulletin, and we guard your confidentiality quite seriously and, and don't like spam ourselves, uh, just sign up on that email list. Um, we send out the WiseBrain Bulletin monthly. And uh, also occasionally we'll send out additional information, links to cool stuff we come across, uh, you know, notices about when we might be down in the South Bay again, things like that. So I encourage you to get on that website, on, on that email list if you want to. And you can always get off at any time you want. We're very easy about that part. Okay. Want to dive in? So, which one? That one? Supposedly. There we go. Okay, so take it away here. So I'm going to talk briefly about the plan for the day. Um, we're going to occupy the center of these three circles, the intersection of psychology, neurology, and contemplative practice, particularly Buddhism. And that's, a, that's the territory where we're going to be functioning. To us, that's the heartwood. Uh, I love this quote. Rick loves this quote, too. This is a classic quote from the Dharma. Uh, it really talks about how liberation is the ultimate heartwood of spiritual practice within a Buddhist frame. And we're obviously uh, centered in a Buddhist frame today in terms of the world's great contemplative traditions, although we may make reference to some other ones and we have a deep bow of respect to the other great traditions of the world, all of which have a contemplative wing. Um, the Buddha is really saying here that uh, intermediate gains are worth doing. Feeling happier, feeling kinder, that's great, that's better. You know, happy is better than unhappy. Uh, good is better than bad. Uh, kind is better than cruel. But at the end of it all, it's really about liberation. And at the heart of liberation is our topic uh, for today, which is the self. Uh, the Buddha made it very clear that uh, one of the very, probably the last form of clinging to go is clinging to the sense of self. That uh, persistent illusion, he called it, of the personal identity. 
And along the way, self is one of the four main objects of clinging, the others being views, um, sense desires, including the avoidance of pain, as well as rites and rituals. Uh, Think of it in a modern sense as routines or habits. In any case, self is one of the great objects of clinging and therefore of suffering, and is therefore a very central subject. It's also a messy, thorny subject, uh, very vulnerable to what the Buddha called a thicket of views. Uh, It's disorienting to start deconstructing self, uh, and it's easy to get kind of heady and abstract about it philosophical and all the rest. And so as much as we can today, we're going to really ground what we're doing in experiential practices and and processes. Uh, We will discuss self in a context of Western science and particularly an evolutionary framework to think about how it got constructed phylogenetically as multi-celled organisms evolved over the last 650 million years. Um, and use that uh, lens uh, as a way to really develop a greater penetrating understanding of the um, hypnotic affliction of self. You know, the way it captures us, the way it's hard to see our own eyes because we're in the self trying to understand the self. And to use that kind of understanding, both conceptual and experiential, to help unpack it. You know, a visual for me on that is dry eye sublimating. You know, it's a solid that turns to gas. And hopefully there'll be a lot of gaseousness in the room by the end of the day. I'm not talking about the beans you had at lunch. I'm talking about the self itself dissolving. Okay, so that's our aim for the day. Um, so plan. Uh, setting the stage, we're, gonna, we're doing that part right now. Then uh, Rick's going to take us through uh, some uh, neurologically informed foundations of meditation, five uh, cool practices to really uh, sort of prime the brain for meditative depth. Uh, quick sidebar, a lot of what has interested us in this stuff is the recognition that we're householders and we want to get as far as we can toward the heartwood. And um, so as an offering to householders who have a similar feeling, it's very uh, important to think about adapting practices that were developed primarily for monastics to people who have a hard time meditating every day, let alone meditating deeply. Typical monastic in a non-meditative um, you know, setting, just a kind of everyday life, might be meditating three to four hours a day pretty commonly. It's kind of like a rock tumbler, you know, that kind of slow, 24-7 grinding and polishing. You drop the pebbles in on day one, and when you're, you know, an eighth grader, like maybe I, like I was actually, I had one of those little guys, and then it just slowly grinds away. And then, you know, three months later, you pull out these gorgeous polished agates and whatnot. Well, that's monastic life, but we don't have access to that. So it's really... Um, useful to think about how to use Western science, psychology and neurology in particular, to turbocharge and individualize practice, because there's also a great diversity of individual brains and therefore minds. Uh, It's probably the most fundamental diversity of all is temperamental, neurologically grounded diversity. And so that's one thing that really turns us on. So out of that foundations of meditation, Rick will then talk about what's going on in your brain. Then we'll explore the integration of mind and brain. taking refuge in different practices. We'll talk about the amazing brain. Then happiness and awareness. That will take us to lunch. Then um, self in the brain and in evolution. 
that stuff gets very cool. And then lots of ways to release self. So I really encourage you to come back after lunch because that's when we're really going to you know, kick it into a whole other gear and go into the deep end of the pool. Uh, let's see, a lot of material today, but you got a packet. That's good. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, we're going to stick around at the breaks and also at um, lunch. Uh, we'll be moving right along. We have a script. We're maniacs for scripts. You know, it's our form of rites and rituals. It also makes us feel safer. Safety is important, as Rick will take us through momentarily in terms of foundations of meditation. But anyway, uh, feel free to ask questions as we go along. We will tend to move along. And um, we also have built-in times for discussion as well. And feel very free to contact us afterward um, by phone or email if you like, if anything comes up in the process of this or you want to talk further about anything. Okay. Okay, I was thinking foundations of meditation and householders. And uh, um, some people like to get up early in the morning uh, to meditate. My introduction to even thinking about getting up this morning was my six-year-old coming bouncing out of uh, bouncing out of his room, coming down and deciding that jumping on daddy was the best way to wake up. So it's like no time to meditate. Time to go out and get chocolate milk and cereal. Um, so the the householder thing was sort of up for me this morning. So I think to sort of start to ground, we did a little short meditation just at the beginning. But I think we're going to do a slightly guided meditation now to sort of set the stage and give you an immediate experience today in what we'll be talking about uh, throughout the day in terms of our uh, more intellectual didactic stuff. Um, and really what we aim for in the meditation is that to try to set, to set you into a place where you're really in a state of clarity, you're in a state of happiness, you're in a state of what might even be called love for yourself and for the world. And that's actually uh, an, uh, something that we've kind of come in contact with, that kind of one of the basic resting states in meditation uh, is actually in that state of what could best be described as love. Um, most of us obviously were here have meditated before. I'll be trying to keep my suggestions to a minimum. Sometimes having somebody guide you through meditation when you're involved in your own process can be kind of jarring because here comes this auditory stimulus of somebody's grating voice taking you out of your bliss state. Uh, I'll try not to do that. Um, but I'll be saying a certain number of suggestions through here. Um, so to just try to be with that as best you can. Uh, be as relaxed and as open as possible. Um, as the Zen saying goes, be with your mind like a skillful rider of a horse with neither too tight or too loose a rein. I'll be doing five basic suggestions. And these suggestions are foundations for meditation, and they're in your slide set, that are grounded in actually how the brain works and how the brain works in establishing itself in uh, uh, in a meditative state. And, I'll, and Rick and I will be explaining the neurologic rationale for those suggestions later on. And after those five suggestions, I'll be asking you to take those suggestions and then move into the interior sensations in your body of each and every breath from beginning to end for five minutes. For most of us, that's about 75 breaths, which is a challenge. 
if you think about it, in terms in, certainly in terms of uh, of my daily meditations, uh, a challenge to hang on. So you know, sometimes it's one, two, three breaths and gone, uh, and then bringing it back. So, but we, it's a great way to sort of jumpstart steadying the mind, and periodically you can get into that place where you, the, uh, as Rick has ta- told me a couple of times, that sitting with your breath is like sitting in this very comfortable rocking chair. It's just there, and you're just with it from the beginning to the end. Um, if your attention wanders, that's normal, that's understandable, that's part of the hard wiring of the brain, and it's one of the things that we talk about. Um, just bring it back. And one of the ways I, uh, uh, that helped me when I realized I was off the breath and I would get very frustrated as I was starting to meditate, uh, oh my God, I can't do this, and I would be forcing myself to meditate. Uh, w- when you wake up and find that you're not on the breath, that you're off in story or in sensation or feeling or memory or something, that moment that you wake up and say, oh, I'm not where I was, that's a moment of awakening. And in a way, that's a piece of that's a piece of the victory we're all attempting to achieve. And it's a moment of enlightenment to say, "Ah, here I am," and bring yourself back to the breath. That's a way of holding that in a completely different frame than the defeat of "Oh my gosh, my mind stole me away," as opposed to "Oh look, my mind woke me up again." And I think that's a nice way to hold when you get dragged off. So, any questions? Okay, so let's begin. Now ring the gong three times when we're done. So take up your seat. A position on the cushion or on the chair. Your body in a relaxed but dignified posture. A sense of regal dignity. A human being halfway between heaven and earth. A son and daughter of the Buddha. An absolute right to be here. Let your eyes gently close, or perhaps be slightly open. Let yourself scan through your bodies, gently, feeling out areas where there might be tension or stress. that with a slight movement you can relax and let go of. No need to hold on to any more tension or stress or suffering for this moment of time. With your eyes closed sounds will come much more into awareness let them go. And just bring yourself gently into the sensation of breathing. 
wherever breath is happening for you. At the opening of the nostrils, coolness or warmth in the back of the nose, sensations in the throat, rise and fall of the chest, expansion or contraction of the belly. Just let yourself be with the breath. And bring your attention to breathing. Now for the five suggestions. First, form an intention for your meditation experience. Perhaps with words, such as I will be peacefully connected with the experience of breathing for this time. Or perhaps a wordless intention. A body sensation or a sensation of something you would like to manifest. Second, deliberately relax your body by taking a big inhalation and then exhaling it fully all the way out. as you let go of the air, let go of the tension, let go of the stress, feel it leave your body. Maybe take two or three more breaths. shorter but deep inhale and then a prolonged exhalation savoring the release of tension from your body and your mind. 
third, bring to your awareness as much of a sense of safety as you can. A sense of being in a protected setting in this room. Being among good and heartfelt people. Being strong in yourself and your ability. feeling safer, being more able to relax the vigilance for things outside, letting them go and bringing your attention inward. Fourth, bring to mind and into your awareness a sense of positive feeling, perhaps a very gentle or mild one, a sense of peacefulness right now. Gratitude for all the good things in your life. Contentment. Happiness and joy are just being alive this moment. Just that sense of being alive and aware. Let that positive sensation permeate your meditation, flavor it, bringing to your face the half-smile of the Buddha, suggestion is to let a sense of the benefit of this meditation sinking into you arise. Feeling the meditation nurture you, helping you. 
gently inclining your mind and your heart in an ever more wholesome direction. toward liberation. And so now, with these five suggestions. Let's try to be present with each individual breath from beginning to end, from the pause before the inhale, all the way through the inhalation, the fullness, and then the exhalation all the way to the end. And then the pause before the next breath. Paying attention to each breath. receiving each breath as a fresh breath. Becoming more absorbed in the breath letting go of everything else. Breathing moment by moment for five more minutes.
That's about 10 or 15 minutes. I'm st- it's still kind of remarkable to me that um, just that much time, uh, that little time, makes such a difference in, in my perception of how I am in the world. Um, coming from, you know, when we started the introductions, just how busy and, you know, freeway-driven I was coming in the door and, you know, all of that other kind of stuff, and now I'm actually in the room. It's kind of neat. Um, that difference is kind of interesting. You know, one of our sort of fundamental tenets that that Rick and I, as uh, you know, brain and behavior scientists kind of people, uh, think is that this immaterial mental activity. Really, it really engages. It, it's represented by and it directs very material neurologic activity. It's a brain in there doing all that, which is, for you know, for me as a neurologist, is always one of the real kicks. Is that you know, there's this, there's this electrical thing going on, and that my experience of that is is to some extent directing, and being directed by. Uh, this brain that I'm in. So, in sort of the foundations of meditation, the rationale behind those five suggestions, the first was setting an intention. Setting an intention, which is basically a motor program, I am going to do something, uh, enlists the frontal lobes, which from the, for the frontal lobes of the brain are basically where we do most of our, our, uh, our decisions for action based on the view, quite literally, that the back part of our brain gives us for where we are. So the frontal lobes send orienting and primary and priming messages throughout the brain, which has established this goal. In, uh, it could be you know, uh, going to get a cup of coffee, or it could be um, deciding to really sit uh, under your tree of enlightenment and go for full liberation. Either one of those is a task that you, your frontal lobes can set you for the organism to do. Relaxing the body, the second intention, is activates the parasympathetic wing of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is kind of our internal housekeeping thing. It runs the blood pressure, the heart rate, the motility of, this, of the gut. Um, <coughs> it handles a lot of our... Uh, the, the communications with the hormones uh, that are ongoing throughout the body. Um, the sympathetic system is the uh, adrenaline response. It's the fight, flight, fright piece. The parasympathetic system is the relaxation. The, sort of the, the code word there is rest and digest. It's the, it's the calming down. It's the centering part of the autonomic nervous system. The third intention uh, calling up a greater sense of safety tends to calm this very frightened prey animal that we live in um, and calm those, those tendencies to continually scan for threats and to activate our responses to withdraw or attempt to defend against. It's sort of the least sign of these things or the smallest sound is that, is that rustle papers that the teacher is uh, moving, moving around in the front of the class or is that a snake under your chair? Uh, 
you know that kind of that kind of thing. Those threats cannot don't necessarily come from outside. There are also threats inside the body, which include you know sensations of pain or discomfort in the actual body itself, or sensations of discomfort or pain that come out of your mind. Bad memories, memories of of past painful experiences, uh, expectations for the future based on your past experience or what you think is going on now. Um, Interestingly, in the uh, traditional instructions for meditation, uh, one's to find a place of seclusion, you know, free from the distractions of the world, in a cave, usually, or under a tree. And the Buddha's own enlightenment was done under the Bodhi tree. And if you think about that, the tree had his back. And the entire the the entire experience of the Buddha's uh, night of enlightenment, or so it is told, the forces of Mara came at him in their various guises of intent, of temptation or threat or 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 uh, distraction. But Mara came at him from the front. The tree had his back. So there's a sense of safety that nothing's coming to get you from behind that allowed the Buddha himself to achieve his own sense of enlightenment. And so I think in the instructions is that sense of safety that's built into the thought. Also, you'll notice that that was about not safety total as a complete entity with a big capital S, but safer. Uh, There's no such such thing as absolutely safe. And sometimes, based on your, uh, your, your, your makeup or your experience, that sense of lowering your threat, your anxiety level, your threat detectors may actually be in itself scary. That may be one of the things that makes you more nervous about sitting. And so the vigilance has helped you to cope and survive in the past. Basically, what we're suggesting in that uh, is just to bring it down a little bit so that you feel safer, so that there's more space and time available for you to explore internally. The fourth suggestion, uh, evoking positive emotions. Positive emotions are, are just real pleasant in, their, you know, in and of themselves. But positive emotions as a brain experience has a lot of kind of beneficial health, health benefits, physical health benefits to your body, and mental health benefits. There's psychological resilience. The ability to come from a positive place allows you to be more resilient and taking on the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that are going to come your, your way anyway. It also, in an interesting way, uh, as is shown in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, positive emotions and, in, and basically bringing on a more positive approach to your life uh, activates your immune system in stronger ways to handle both the incoming threats from... Um, the thing I'm dealing with right now, which is invading pediatric viruses from, you know, elementary school. Thank you very much, Tar and Nian. Uh, but also the internal, uh, the internal threats to your survival, which are the three cancers that you're going to generate today. Uh, that happens to all of us. I mean, that's about. It's estimated that about three cells in your body go bad every day, and your immune system whacks them out. Positive, positive experience helps to take care of that and, and builds that as an internal strength, so that's a, which is one of the other reasons to put that in there. 
Positive emotions also stimulate the dopamine reward circuits of the brain and the energizing aspect of a positive emotion stimulates norepinephrine, which is another neurotransmitter. Interestingly, the norepinephrine experience is that alerting, brightening of the mind, the sort of, wow, paying attention to things, that actually is one of the major characteristics of a a mind in a deep meditative state, sort of that bright awareness of what's going on. Dopamine itself, the other neurotransmitter, uh, inhibits working memory, which is making them less responsive to new stimuli. So by inhibiting working memory and by inhibiting distraction, you actually make you more able to stay focused on the breath. So it's a feed-forward loop. It allows you to stay more focused and more connected to the breath and, and, and allows you to continue in that positive experience. Um, and both of these neurotransmitters in their reward and brightening aspects uh, make connections and, abs- and help you absorb the lessons and the positive states of mind in meditation. <coughs> Which takes you to that final suggestion, which is allowing yourself, in in the context of trying to discipline yourself to stay with the breath, to also open up to absorbing the benefits of the meditation. So it primes the memory circuits throughout your brain for whatever insights are available to you, whatever shows up as sort of that flashing bubble of, oh, this is how it is, that that we've all experienced accidentally, but by intention in meditative states. So doing all of that helps, comp- uh, helps compensate uh, for the negativity bias uh, in our brain using our, these five intentions. And, that's, and this, by, by basically um, activating the implicit memory, which is not specific events, but sort of the emotional memory that sort of shades the interior landscape. And one of the things that we see in people, uh, for example, monastics who've spent the, you know, the 40 years in the, in the rock polisher that Rick was talking about. The newsletter of Spirit Rock Meditation Center is called The Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and, one of the, and one of the things about, about people who've done lots of meditation is they, they have this very positive bias. And you can feel that being in the room with them. You know, there's this very interesting, wonderful, positive flavor to people who spent a lot of time in meditation. And I think it has to do with incorporating these neurotransmitters and activating this implicit memory. So that is sort of the frame. Um, comments, questions to what you've experienced or what I sort of, sort of well, outlined as to why those five intentions would be useful. Oh, the limbic system? Okay. <clears throat> um, well, top down is frontal. The bottom up part, the, the question was about uh, using the, uh, the limbic system to, to frame your intention. Limbic system is part of, um, is, your, is your memory circuit, but it's not just the didactic memory of trying to remember a sentence, you know, today's a nice day, but yesterday it rained. Uh, the limbic system also attaches emotional significance to memory. 
Um, and, and as a matter of fact, that may be one of its major functions is not in the limbic system, is not the didactic memory of what's going on, but the emotional frame. Uh, limbic system is, uh, we'll talk a little bit about this late, later, is largely the mammalian, uh, paleomammalian circuit in our brain. And it allows us to remember what has gone before and to allow us to, uh, what I said actually, I sort of I- implicated it as I, as I went through that. <laughs> the, the limbic system in its memory remembers what it was like to be a certain way. Um, and or remembers what it was told about what it was like to be a certain way. So... If I'm remembering what my what my last meditation experience was like or what my last blissful meditation experience was like, I can bring that to mind and I can set the intention from the frontal lobe to tell the limbic system, okay, I want you to go back and pick up the memory traces of what it was like to be in that bliss state. And that and the and the and the circuit remembers that. There's there's an electrical representation of that bliss state and it will bring it up. And there actually is a tremendous interaction between the frontal lobes and areas of the brain in the temporal lobes called the hippocampus and the amygdala. That they talk back and forth to each other a lot in terms of selecting what memories are to be brought up at this time to be available for use in this activity. For example, you know, I'll give you a mundane example. <clears throat> if you're trying to write an English sentence, your brain will not be looking for uh, your brain will not be looking for the addition paradigm for three plus four that it remembers from second grade. You know, it'll be looking for for words or language. If you are trying to uh, find your way through town, your brain is not going to be trying to remember the dictionary definition of uh, of harbinger. Okay, but it's going to be remembering visual spatial cues for how to wend your way through one street or another. Those are completely different tasks, but the limbic system has its available. It's a bottom-up system that allows your, yourself to get the vision of what it is that you're then intending to do. Okay. Why is it so difficult in meditation to maintain concentration on on an object, whether it's the breath or anything else, it just seems like, just given a matter of time, whether it's a few seconds or longer, there's something else comes up, or tension in the body, or I don't know the order of the distraction. But I was just curious why, you know, um, why with the intention to do that, is it just it seems right. common? That's very difficult. It's actually wired into our attention mechanisms. Um, and I can refer you to some work by Jonathan Cohen about that in terms of paying attention. It's wired into our, our attention mechanisms to pay attention to something long enough so we get, the, we get what we need to get out of it for the moment and then move on to the next thing. This system evolved in the context of a rapidly moving environment where one had to pay attention to, to new threats that were coming up. And so what we are doing to some extent in focusing and, and holding attention on a particular object is actually counter, um, it's a counter evolutionary, counter uh, uh, genetic endowment 
uh, and we're actually disciplining the mind to do something. And it, it's a side benefit of meditation that puts you into a different state. Uh, but the, the act, that, that inability to stay focused on one particular thing without discipline is actually part of our biologic inheritance. And we're wired to do that, actually. We're training it to do something different. In other words, squirrels, monkeys, lizards, we got really absorbed and blissfully spaced out you know, yeah. on the leaves. <laughs> Didn't catch the slither or right, the right. nearby. That, that, that I referred to as the Om Mane Padme Chomp effect. <laughs> In other words, our ancestors who are anxious and irritable live to have grandchildren. <laughs> Is it also possible, on the other hand, that there's a fear of dissolution by by just staying focused, that I would lose my, quote, self? That, that, is, that, one, normally that, is, one, that is one of the things that shows up. Among the multiplicity of other uh, anxieties and fears, that is one of the things that happens. Any questions on this? We should move on. Okay. you got to move on. The ear, the ear has been transferred. That's it. That's a great question, though, actually. We're, we're going to swing back to it more. And we did a whole workshop here a year ago called The Neurology of Awakening, which we also do at Spirit Rock. And uh, it's really about concentration and steadying the mind, which is, of course, a foundation to contemplative practice, and um, including uh, a swing at uh, what... Uh, is going on in the brain during mystical states of mind or non-ordinary states of, m- of mind called the jhanas, which constitute the right concentration element of the Eightfold Path are the jhanas. And so we took a swing at that. That's on our website. That's pretty cool stuff. But we're going to not do much of that today. We're just going to go after a little subject, the self. All right. So <laughs> kind of foundational here. What Rick uh, took us through really, you know, is... Um, very uh, palpably is how doing mental activities can change your brain, which then register as changes in states of mind. And that whole idea about how the mind links to the brain, the brain links to the mind, and how you can use those links to benefit yourself and other people that you interact with is sort of our central recurring theme. And so to, so to kind of frame that, um, I want to talk a little bit about the mind and brain. Okay. So what do we mean here? Really? How wonderful. Oh, okay. So this high-tech wiring. It's great. It's very cool. I thought cool. was supposed to clip it to his ear. Yeah, really? Yeah. Or my nose. <laughs> a little pierce. One of those temporary pierces, you know. A little duke will bring you into the moment. <laughs> All right. So mind and brain. All right. So... Couple, some, some really important points, fairly briskly. Number one, what do we mean by the word mind? We mean by mind the flows of information through the nervous system. In other words, what the physical nervous system does is it represents information. Now, exactly how it does that is still fairly mysterious. It's important to realize that. If you think about it, astronomy as a science is about 2,000 years old. Modern biology, you could date it really to the invention of the microscope the early 1600s, 1620 or so, whatever that is, that's probably pushing 400 years old. Um, neuroscience really is a focused discipline. It's probably about 100 years old. And in the last 20 years, the knowledge base about the brain has literally doubled uh, throughout all of what's been known in human history. And a lot of it's been driven by instrumentation. In other words, much as the uh, advent of the telescope drove astronomy to a whole new level, microscope took 
you know, biology to a whole new level, so do, um, so have, you know, MRIs and other scanning technologies taken neuroscience to a whole new level. Nonetheless, today, we're probably relative to the brain about where the biologists were around 1750. Just think about where we are today, 250 years later, in terms of our understanding of biology. So there's a lot about the brain that's not fully understood, but it's generally clear to people that what the brain does, what the nervous system does broadly, is represent information. And that flow of information is what we mean by mind. Second key point, most of mind, in other words, most mental activity, is outside of awareness. What we're aware of especially that kind of really slow, boiled down mental activity we call thought, is um, a tiny tip of the iceberg. So most mental activity is forever outside of awareness. For example, if you want to move your finger, the sensory motor instructions to move that finger are outside of awareness. A lot of information flows in that's not particularly registered in awareness as well, but actually can make a difference. We focus on what's in awareness because that's what we're aware of. But what actually really matters most are the qualities of mind. In other words, the tendencies of the heart that get cultivated over the long term through building structure in the nervous system and in particular in the brain. So third key point, um, the prevailing view among neuroscientists, and it's the one we're working with today, is that um, most, if not all, Subjective experience maps one-to-one to material neural processes. Now, the most important word in that sentence was the word most, because this is a very controversial idea. There's a long philosophical tradition and a long spiritual tradition, uh, which is very powerful today as well, that, um, that there is a transcendental something whatever you want to call it, God, spirit, the ground, Buddha nature, you know, uh, non-dual capital A awareness, something or other, that is required for consciousness. That could be true. Rick and I happen to actually think that it's true. I'm a little more shoved in the theistic continuum than Rick is, a little more hard-boiled than I am. Agnosticism. But at the end of the day, my personal hunch is that after pushing the technology for centuries, and I think this is a tough, intellectually difficult problem, what really is going on in the brain, because as we'll discuss later, it's extraordinarily complex. At the end of all that, there will be an irreducible, mysterious X factor that... You know, not that the scientists can only bow to. But meanwhile, we're working today within a framework of Western science in which there is presumed a one-to-one correspondence between mental activity and material, physical, neural activity. Now, that has three really interesting implications. So, first, as your mind changes, your brain changes. They map together. The brain changes momentarily, like you're thinking. You're hearing the words going through. You're seeing sights. You're, you're having sensations. Your mind's wandering. You're wondering what you'll do for lunch, whatever. You wonder, did I turn the faucet off tightly? Uh, can my, I have a cat at home. Uh, can the cat get in and out? Whatever. Um, and uh, all that 
mental activity maps to an underlying physical process. That's sort of the temporary changes. But what's also very interesting is how mental activity leaves a residue behind in enduring structures in the nervous system, and in particular the brain. For example, uh, people who play the piano a lot have thicker cortical layers, uh, which means more uh, neuronal interaction uh, with each other, more synapses, as well as more blood flow and underlying support systems from you know, the, the glial cells in the brain. Anyway, uh, pianists have thicker cortical layers. So do taxi cab drivers. That's my favorite one. They have uh, thicker regions in the hippocampi, the parts of the brain that Rick spoke of earlier that, among other things, have to do a lot with spatial memory. Okay? Meditators have thicker portions of the brain, uh, uh, in particular having to do with internal awareness and steadiness of mind, uh, the ability to have what's called controlled attention. Um, so on the other hand, on a darker note, negative experiences also change neural structure. For example, chronic experiences of stress literally shrink the hippocampi uh, so that it's harder for a person to register new experiences hopefully more positive ones than the traumatic ones in the past, which is a fairly tragic thing. In some cases, uh, people who are severely depressed, which is a marker for, among other things, severe stress typically, it's stressful to be depressed, can have a hippocampus that's about um, three-quarters of a normal size. That's a very substantial change in the brain. So in other words, as your mind changes, your brain changes. One of the key phrases here is, from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb. Sidebar, we were delighted to have his grandson in one of our workshops uh, at Spirit Rock, one of our first ones, which was really great. He came up. For us, Donald Hebb's a total hero. He was the guy whose work generated the phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. It's kind of it. In other words, for better or worse, neural activity leaves structure behind. That's why it becomes very important to really pay attention to what your actual experience is above and beyond the benefits uh, or costs momentarily of what's flowing through your awareness, it's the trace it leaves behind. You know, like a spring shower will leave little furrows on the hillside. And then those furrows start gathering more and more water over time, you know, as the summer goes on and the rainy season and there's more and more rain, or the winter goes on, rather, and there's more and more rain. Um, and uh, those initial little furrows become, you know, gullies after a while through kind of vicious cycles, self-fulfilling processes. That's why it's very important to be kind to ourselves, to really encourage the causes that lead to positive experiences. Second, as your brain changes, your mind changes. So the mapping goes the other way, rather than, as it were, some sense top-down, you know, mental to physical, it goes physical to mental. And, for example, if you uh, change your brain waves into a pattern that's called gamma, which is very fast, um, you will tend to steady the mind because what those very fast oscillations do is they tend to enlist very large um, regions of neural real estate. And that pattern of high gamma um, activity is one of the signature patterns of people with a lot of meditative experience. There's a kind of cohering of the brain as a whole through these very fast waves that happen typically around 30 to 50 times a second. I mean, imagine that. 30 to 50 times a second, neurons firing together, you know, um, spread out over very large parts of the brain. Pretty remarkable. This takes us to the third implication, which is you can use your mind to change your brain to change your mind. 
to benefit your whole being and every other being you touch, perhaps with ripples spreading out to the whole wide world. Quick sidebar, we have a real passion for thinking about how this kind of emerging psychoneurotechnology, self-directed brain change, can um, be of use in a world that's on the blade of the sword, right? It could tip either way. There are a lot of positive trends in the world today, but there are a lot of negative trends as well. And we think that one of the key factors in which way that world will tip on the edge of the knife there um, is whether a critical mass of people can become more skillful with their brains. So, moving right along. Where's my little thingamajigger? Here we go. So, let's take a look here at an example of using the mind to change the brain to benefit the mind. This is a slide with the person, of, this is a meditator who's looking in that direction. Oh, yeah, okay, I beg pardon. There's a reversal there. Thank you. I'm looking at the screen here. My apologies. That's good. So, anyway, the, the area that's lit up is called the anterior cingulate uh, cortex. That's a part of the brain that's involved in steadying of attention. And it is much more active. It's using a lot more glucose um, uh, in this picture compared to the rest of the brain, which is uh, dark, which is quieter. And this is uh, the headline at the top. There's four of my favorite words in the Dharma, ardent, resolute, diligent, and mindful. That's the recurring description you've probably read many times uh, for a meditator. Someone who is ardent, diligent, resolute, and mindful has that little uh, part of the brain in your brain. When you're being concentrated, that part of your brain is lighting up like a Christmas tree. Okay. Or a Hanukkah bush, depending on your orientation. Okay. So um, the um, point here, in a way, is that through practice. I mean, the Buddha was, he was an extraordinary yogi, and he was also a great teacher. And in, um, grounded in his own uh, uh, training, he really appreciated the power of practice, just staying with it, you know, uh, continuing the process. And that means that through continuing practice, uh, the practice leaves a residue, a wholesome residue that's physical, that's palpable in our own brains. I'll give you another little example of that. Whoops. These are nuns in prayer. Uh, an interesting point about this slide is that many of the, the two of the key same areas that light up when someone is doing uh, Buddhist meditation also light up in these Carmelite nuns. The Buddhist meditation was a concentration practice on compassion the, in the previous slide. This one uh, is nuns who are experiencing a kind of communion with, with uh, Christ consciousness, you know, in some sense as brides of Christ. And um, in their brains as well, the insula, which has to do with interior awareness, as well as the anterior cingulate cortex, having to do with steadiness of mind, are both lit up as well which gets at the point that while we're not trying to be reductionistic and say that all practices are the same, it is interesting that at the level of the brain, uh, there are actually great similarities. You know, it reminds me of something that, uh, a comment that was once made in graduate school. About, I'm a therapist. Uh, I suspect there are some therapists in the room as well. Um, what therapists say they do is, is about this divergent. What therapists actually do in the room is about this divergent. You know, what the theologians say is miles and miles and miles apart. 
What the practitioners are actually doing is only about this variable. This is kind of interesting and speaks to, again, to a world at war a lot over religious differences. A point about this slide, you'll notice that there's some areas in the back of the brain that are lit up in these nuns in prayer. This is a visualization meditation. They're visualizing themselves in communication, which leads to, but the anterior cingulate and the insula light up in them, they light up in, uh, in individuals in Tibetan practice. And if you're doing mantra practice, the only difference is that as opposed to the occipital lobes lighting up in a visualization, in mantra practice, this little area over here that does language is active. But the rest of the brain looks like the initial slide of ardent, resolute, diligent, and mindful. The anterior cingulate appears to be the home base for the witness that gets activated when you're in really deep contemplative practice. So, so next one. Nonetheless, um, after a lot of thought, we've concluded that mind does not reduce to brain. Mind, within a Western science model, requires brain. Outside that model, mind may also require a transcendental factor. Inside the Western science model, mind requires brain. But that doesn't mean that mind reduces to brain for the reasons here. Uh, for one, um, the uh, patterns of information that are mind are, in a fundamental sense, independent of their material substrate. For example, if you have a thought in your mind or a concept, like one plus one equals two, that concept can be represented in a brain, can be represented with squiggles on a piece of paper, it can be represented uh, listening to you know your teacher speak in terms of the patterning of sound waves moving from her mouth to yours, let's say in first grade, his or her. Uh, the point is is that the information, the meaning, is independent of the physical substrate, and in that sense, that gives meaning a kind of freedom relative to brain. You know, if you were to think to yourself one plus one, like a minute or so after I said that. I guarantee you there's a different pattern of synaptic firing that supports that underlying idea of one plus one than it was a minute ago, let alone the time you realized that one plus one was two uh, in the first grade. See, there's an independence there. Uh, that means that, um, that uh, while the neural substrate enables the meaning, it doesn't necessarily cause the meaning. There's a kind of causal independence there. And to go the other way, when meaning or thought or information uh, concludes something, it can then direct the mind, the brain rather. In other words, in that sense, the immaterial flow of information can direct material processes. For example, if you simply bring your attention to any of the things that Rick suggested you bring your attention to, a sense of safety or positive feelings, or a relaxation in your body, that mental, immaterial, meaning-based process then directed a lot of neurological activity. It directed it right, in the cascade based on the physical substrate that was mapping to the, to the thought as the thought moved forward through time. Right? But that process was directed by mind. I don't want to go off the deep end here, but there's a kind of a fundamental point here that sometimes people can get very reductionistic 
about mind reducing to brain. And just because mind requires brain doesn't mean that mind needs to reduce to brain, which makes me feel a kind of great appreciation for mind. You know, at the end of the day, mind really matters, even if matter is what enables mind. Okay, so let's have about 10 minutes of discussion and then we'll take a break. So, please. Um, I'm trying to map what you just said onto something that was said on an earlier slide that says most, if not all, subjective immaterial states of mind have a one-to-one correspondence with uh, the brain, whereas what you just said was that there is um, a different brain state for the same mental meaning. I'm I'm trying to understand that. Yeah, the way I would would answer that is that there still is a one-to-one correspondence. In other words... Um, to move away from one plus one because it'll be confusing. You know, it's a dog. Okay. So at the moment I said dog, there was a neural repre- there was a neural activity that mapped to that word. Okay. Now if I say cat, and then I say dog again, I guarantee you the second dog will still map to an underlying hardware. Software always maps to hardware, but the specific instantiation in the moment of that meaning is, is, is a little variable. It's not grossly variable, particularly if, um, if you're doing you know, dog at time one and then dog at time two. But if, for example, I were to say um, you know, the ode to joy, the, the melody of that, you know, that um, is quite variably mapped, you know, com- et cetera. So that's, that's the point. Okay. One, of, one of the things about that, the concept, when Rick says ode to joy, there is a 200, 500 uh, millisecond time when the sound is leaving his lips before it arrives at your ear. Ode to joy is in the room, headed your direction. Now, there's mind right there, ode to joy. And it's headed out to everybody in the room. And it's Rick Hansen's mind establishing itself in your brain. But there's a there's a hundred millisecond, two hundred milliseconds. Not taking it over. <laughs> it's not like uh, alien. There's a there's a hundred to two hundred millisecond delay where mind exists outside of body in a real form. It's vibrations in the atmosphere, just as my voice is right this second. And then it will show up and then it will be it will be the circuit that Rick was talking about. So mind moment by mind moment to go back into the Tibetan uh, ideas about, you know, about going into indivi- each individual mind moments and enlightenment in each mind moment. Mind moment by mind moment, there's a one-to-one correspondence. But it's very plastic and very fungible in terms of how we represent not only the concept of dog, but the concept of liberation. And that will be very, very different every time it shows up. Please. Yes, I had a question. Uh, you were mentioning uh, uh, people, musicians who play the piano. And um, with your experience, do you know of um, any studies on how meditation treats, um, um, you know, those musician cramps or um, writer's cramps or dystonias uh, that where the mind uh, affects that and how, how that could help treat that where some, some kind of imbalance in the in the brain, you know, 
Is your question? Yes. Do we know of any studies, studies on how meditation yeah. can treat dystonias or motor problems? Yes. More, or is it more just a psychological problem? Do you think it's uh, just based on your experience being a, a neurologist and um, a psychologist? I've never. I, I've I've swept the literature pretty intensely myself, yeah. and I've never seen a study on meditation on dystonias, um, which are basically motor tremors of different kinds. Yes. And, um, the one thing I would say is I think that there is research that they are vulnerable to the effects of stress and emotional disturbance, if you will. And so it's, it's an illustration of a, of a broad point, which is that many conditions are worsened by stress and many conditions are helped by well-being. And so by nurturing the general conditions that, you know, it's right effort really an eightfold path, you know, that support the wholesome and undermine the unwholesome, you know, you can then get some benefit for an acute focal issue. Add to that. Uh, I think basically, uh, not, not to add much to Rick, because that summarizes the data pretty well. The concept is it's not going to cure the dystonia, but it will help the individual who is dystonic to hold that motor activity, that motor dysfunction, in a more compassionate light. You know, you, it's, 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 you're not going to get directly to a cure. It's not like penicillin curing pneumococcal pneumonia. You may not, you may not necessarily be able to play Chopin's preludes because you get music dystonia, or you may not be able to write your checkbook because of, of writer's cramp, but you will be able to hold that failure of your organism to do that in a more compassionate light and say, okay, I can't do that, so we'll find another way to get it done. So this may be a little far afield from the kind of the more physical things that we're talking about, but it seems to touch on the transcendental aspect that you were referring to, and that is this notion of dependent origination, where embodiment itself is created by craving, and uh, and that if we can get over that, then we wouldn't have any more embodiment which has always sort of implied to me that we'd all be better off if we didn't embody in the first place, which seems kind of negative and nihilistic and so on. So I wonder if you could speak to that and also to just this notion of, like, what is it that's doing the intending if there isn't a body to begin with? You mean intending to return to a body to yeah. incarnate? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rick has probably a better Dharma perspective, so I'll take the first shot and he'll correct my mistakes. Uh, first off, uh, in t what's intending, remember I said the frontal lobes were looking at the back part of the brain and at the limbic system to get a picture. If you look at the Eightfold Path, it begins with wise view. That's based on prior education and experience. One, one, one does not come into this world as a neonate with wise view already manifest in a, in a complete uh, pattern. Uh, one has to be educated by, by life experience and by teachers to wise view. Well, that's at least my perception. So what ha what's happening in wise view is past experience is then informing the organism that this is skillful and this is not. What I wish to have happen is something I need to direct my body, my actions toward. Okay. 
my my personal view on incarnation is that is not that I'm that it's it's not the next life for you know four thousand years from now. Uh, my personal view on incarnation is that my my mind and my brain, therefore, are directing my incarnation into the next mind moment, which I'm going to do every 50 to 200 milliseconds for the rest of the time that this body exists. Uh, so in, incarnation and reincarnation is not a woo-woo out there in the ozone fact that requires my individual self to come back, which I think is a mistake. But reincarnation is an actual fact of immediate human existence that's happening several hundred times in you and in me while we're sharing this dialogue. No comment. <laughs> How about one more? One more comment or question? And then we'll take a break. Oh, I have a comment. Um, I knew it. Well, it's, it's different. I mean, Let's see, a couple things. So first, uh, um, it's a great question because, you know, when you, uh, when you read the account of the Buddha's own enlightenment, his own experience of, of um, liberation, he, he really talks at the very end as one of the, the defining characteristics of the transition to arhantship, you know, the final of the four, four, of the four stages of awakening, um, that there's a recognition that it's done and there will be no more becoming. And when I first came across that, I read into it a kind of exultant sense, like, finally, I'm done with this stuff, you know? And I really, which for me is kind of weird, because as you go through practice, you get happier and happier and happier and happier. I don't know. I like sunrises, sunsets, chocolate cupcakes, like, you know, bliss is great. You know, love is wonderful. Why would I not want to come back? You know, like that. And the real understanding of it is that at the very end, it's not so much that you don't, how can I put it, it's not so much that you're preferring to not come back anymore because life's a veil of tears. It's just that the conditions no longer are present to come back, which is a different way to understand it. I think it's a very opening kind of way to understand it. That's it for me, hopefully for the moment, on the ultimate questions. But there's now a more grounded one kind of to translate what you said, to, to really get at the question which people will bring up, of course, which is, um, what is it that's intending the end of the self? Right? It becomes very circular, doesn't it? And one of the things to kind of observe, and maybe you can observe this on, on the break, which will set us up here uh, for the themes we're going to really start moving into. This was sort of setting the stage stuff intellectually. We kind of had to do this conceptual framing stuff and then we can really go forward within this frame, is to really observe how little self is needed to walk across a room and go to a bathroom, uh, and how executive functions can be in play. Intentions, in other words, intentions toward uh, liberation, or intentions to go get a drink of water, or intentions to chat with a friend. Tensions can arise, but they don't have to be owned. There doesn't need to be an owner, a claimer, an identifier with that intentionality that choose and, and, and that choosing. So I just invite you to observe that in your own experience. You know, as the Buddha said, Ehe Pasiko, see for yourself, you know, more than anything else. And then uh, the last kind of quick point here really is a takeaway. After all this, you know, bow to sort of we had to address five hundred years of Western philosophy and move it out of the off the table. <laughs> the real point 
is there's an emerging toolbox, an emerging technology whereby we can do things inside our own brains that are guided, uh, that are grounded in 2,500 years of contemplative wisdom. Those folks did not need a neuroscience textbook to become enlightened. All right? But through a kind of the information that's available increasingly through Western science, psychology and neurology, that's giving us an increasingly refined and individualized and directed and nimble and dexterous you know, collection of tools we can use. That's really the point of all this stuff. It's not to kind of go airy-fairy into the philosophy at all, of it all, which is very cool, but kind of seductive and it draws, I think, people into a, often a thicket of views. But to really keep focusing where the Buddha did on the utilitarian point, the pragmatic benefit of these things as skillful means. And that's what really jacks us up about this. And we hope to share some of that enthusiasm with you too. Okay, so let's have an enthusiastic break. And we'll be quick, all right, because we're already behind schedule. A little spin. Uh, ten minutes. All right, thanks a lot.